0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast.
1: We're now moving into this arena where climate change will come faster and faster and faster and faster. And we have to make decisions way faster than we've ever made. And we have to make huge decisions. And I don't think most people grasp just the profundity of what is coming at them.
0: Hey adapters, that was Dr. Suzanne Moser. In this very exciting episode, I talk with Lois DeBacker, Managing Director of the Environment Program at the Kresge Foundation, and with Dr. Suzanne Moser, one of the country's leading climate and adaptation researchers. In this episode, we talk about how adaptation is quickly becoming a profession why there's a lack of nationally recognized adaptation leaders, and challenges and opportunities for this field. And that's just a small sample of the topics we cover. If you are interested in what's happening in the climate adaptation universe, you won't want to miss this episode. Two very thought-provoking conversations with some of the leading thinkers in the field. I hope you enjoy. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. With me today is Lois DeBacker, Managing Director of the Environment Program at the Kresge Foundation. Hi, Lois. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on. Maybe we could just jump into this. Can you give a little bit of background about the Kresge Foundation? I know all about the Kresge Foundation, World Famous Foundation, but if you could give my listeners a little bit of background on what you do there. Happy to do that. The
2: Kresge Foundation is a national philanthropic organization based in metropolitan Detroit. Our purpose is to expand opportunities in American cities. We have several different areas of grant making. I lead our environment program, which is focused on helping cities implement comprehensive climate resilience approaches grounded in equity. We encourage cities to adopt a comprehensive and an integrated approach to climate resilience that encompasses climate mitigation, climate adaptation, and social cohesion. We also work to elevate the inclusion, leadership, and influence of people with low incomes and people of color
0: in climate resilience work. This whole issue of equity, that's a very interesting thing, and we're hearing more of this in the adaptation universe, but with Kresge, I think that's an issue that your foundation covers in other parts of the programs, right?
2: Well, it's something that characterizes all of the work that the foundation does with our interest in increasing opportunities, particularly for low-income people in American cities. It's a hallmark of what we do as an organization as a whole, and it's also a signature of our environment program's work.
0: I wanted you to come on and talk about a few topics, but I just think it's interesting from a foundation's perspective is that you're the director of the environment program. And I think a lot of the adaptation work out there sort of by default kind of heads into the environment program. But as this focus on equity, we're finding that adaptation is could embedded in any number of areas.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's part of what we believe as the environment program is that awareness of climate change and efforts to both reduce the pollution that causes climate change and to prepare for its impacts are something that we need to be thinking about in all sectors of society and in all different professions so that as someone is doing her work as an architect or an urban planner or a transportation planner or a civil engineer, thinking particularly about climate change mitigation and adaptation just needs to become part of how you do business.
0: Now, adaptation as a field actually hasn't been around that long. And I, I guess I'm not as familiar with Kresge. A lot of the foundations, they might just be private foundations where there's family board and such. Is When did Kresge really decide that adaptation was going to be a focus area? How long has it been?
2: It's been about since 2009. The Kresge Foundation has been around for close to 100 years now. For most of its history, it focused on providing challenge grants for capital campaigns for organizations that were, say, building a new wing on a library or acquiring property to for conservation purposes or other purposes. But it was about almost 12 years ago now that The foundation hired Rip Rapson as its new president, and he began a transition of the foundation away from that exclusive focus on capital campaigns and challenge grants for them to grant-making that we hope is strategically addressing the issues of most importance to American society. And one of those is the environment. And so it was in about 2008, 2009 that the environment program began to take shape. And as part of our work, we became one of the earliest philanthropic supporters of climate adaptation work in the United States.
0: Well, I'd like to add, and I think we can get into that a little bit later, but one of the few that I think is is still focusing on adaptation, and I think there needs to be a lot more focus. I want to jump into this report that you commissioned, Rising to the Challenge Together. And as I had Suzanne Moser and we talked a little bit about that, and I'll I'll ask questions. I think that it won't be redundant with what Susan said, but she made a point of saying that that comma has a lot of significance to it. I don't know if that means anything to you, but rising to the challenge comma together. What did she mean by that?
2: Well, I think Susie's perspective, I'm smiling as you say that because I remember her saying how important that comma was in the title. And while I'm someone who's very particular about grammar, I don't really get how much difference it makes, but I know it was important to her. I think the really important thing is that the together, the notion that there is a big challenge ahead of us with respect to climate adaptation. And we can't assume that it's someone else's job to do it. If adaptation is to emerge and grow into a strong field of practice that influences how professionals in a variety of disciplines do their work, everybody needs to be moving toward that. So the together involves thinking about people who identify as field builders, people who identify as practitioners people who think of themselves as funders of adaptation work, and people in professions that are climate-affected professions. All of us need to be working in greater synergy and coordination
0: if this field is to grow as quickly as it needs to grow. Maybe you could also give a little bit of history about the report. The report, I think, is about 100 pages long, and it really tries to assess the state of adaptation right now. And so was it Kresge? Was it your, your program saying, we need to know more about this? Or was there sort of an external request that maybe you guys take a lead on it? I mean, wh- what was sort of the like motivation of doing the report in the first place?
2: Well, the motivation was uh, twofold, at least. As I mentioned earlier, since 2009, we've made investments intended to help build, build a field of practice around adaptation and after many years of investment, we thought it was important. To assess the state of development of the field. We commissioned the report in part to inform our own work going forward, but more importantly, as a service to the community of people who are interested in advancing climate adaptation efforts. There are lots of people trying to build this field, and we we tend, everything we do, we want to be of service to the field and of service to the nonprofit sector in particular that's working to bring about change. So, While the idea of commissioning the report was ours, the intent was always for it to be of service to the broad community of interest, not just us. And I think it has been. I think a number of people have found it
0: useful, interesting, and thought-provoking. And so the report's actually been out, the, with the luxury of us having this conversation now that the report's actually been out for four or five months. Maybe you could share some examples, some of the conversations you've had with people that have a chance to kind of look at the report. I mean, what are they saying? What's standing out? Because it covers a lot of ground and makes a, a bunch of recommendations, and maybe there's specific recommendations they'd like. But I mean, what's really stood out with some of the people that you've talked to?
2: I think many people have been struck by the way the report shows that adaptation is still at a very early stage of development it acknowledges the critically important work that early adopters have been doing and the the innovation that has been happening in different communities the growth to some extent of a sense of community in part helped by things like the national adaptation forums that have been held and the regional adaptation forums that There is momentum, there is activity happening in communities across the United States. But I think a contribution of the report was the four Ps framework that the authors presented. One of the things they found through their interviews with, I believe it was more than 70 people, is that while everyone they interviewed was involved in some way with climate adaptation, not very many of the people had a framework of what a field of practice looked like, that people spoke of a community of people, they spoke sometimes of a field, but they didn't necessarily have that framework that suggests that there are things called fields, and they have certain characteristics, and the framework that they presented around a clear sense of purpose, clearly identified set of people who play leadership roles, clearly identified promising practices that should be replicated, and the pillars of funding and policy. That 4P framework was a contribution of the report and very thought-provoking for folks.
0: And and I did think it, it identified the idea of professionalized being an adaptation professional. And Susan and I actually, we dug in a little bit of Maybe there's a bit of an identity crisis going on in the field because it, it covers so many different sectors, and yet should it be its own – you know? and you you know Beth Gibbons at the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, and I know Beth well. She's been on this podcast. I think that's an encouraging sign that a professional organization has developed around this field, and yet there are these still notions of what am I an adaptation professional or am I an engineer or am I a city planner? And I mean – are, are you guys having those conversations? What What do you think of it and does it mean to be a professional adaptation person?
2: We have had those conversations. In fact, there was an advisory committee to the report, and that was one of the topics that we discussed. Some people on the advisory committee thinks there does not need to be a field. Others feel strongly that there does need to be a field. I'm of the camp that it's great that some people are identifying as adaptation professionals because we do need people who are expert in adaptation that can clearly articulate what principles are involved, what does it mean to do work with climate adaptation in mind. It's very important that we have leaders and experts who can chart that path for us. At the same time, I think the way we're going to get to scale is not to persuade every urban planner to call himself or herself an adaptation practitioner or adaptation professional, but By mainstreaming those ideas that adaptation professionals are curating and testing, mainstreaming those things into all of the different disciplines that need to be doing their work in a different way because climate change is progressing.
0: Well, I think there's an opportunity to take advantage of people's energy. I actually have quite a few young professionals, university students or even like young career that contact me that listened to the podcast, and they're very excited about the opportunities in adaptation, and they're always asking me, like, how do I get into it? And so someone recently heard my landscape architect episode where they're doing some adaptation work, and she wanted to do adaptation and potentially be a landscape architect. And so that sort of that hybrid future approach to being an adaptation professional, I think, taps in to a lot of the enthusiasm that people want to do something about climate change. And adaptation, I think, uh, uh, appeals to that sort of nobler intention. So I, I, I would hate to lose that, too.
2: hmm Yes. And, and a parallel that a former colleague of mine talked about was related to the certification that the uh, Urban Green Building Council provides, that people of lots of different um, professional stripes get certified as knowing about green building. And I think that's an interesting way to think about adaptation as well, that that it is a distinct body of knowledge that can be applied in multiple different settings.
0: Well, and I had mentioned this, Rich Sorkin from Jupiter Intel, just even using risk modeling and all these sort of new tools we're going to plan 100 years out, there's some technical skills there that you you hopefully want to create some uniform standards around. And so professionalizing what it means to be an adaptation person the, we got to do it for any number of reasons. Yes. All right. I'm going to, you know, some questions uh, related to that report and a report comes out and you know how it is, <laughs> even though this is your report. Sometimes reports come out and they end up on a shelf. And I don't know if, if that's happening with your report, but is there something that Kreski's doing with that report? It's been at four or five months. Do you have sort of a marketing plan? Do you have like, there's a series of recommendations. Are you, committed to integrating some of those into, as people, if people aren't aware, foundations give out grants and you give out grants in certain areas. What's really next with this report? If it did include some really useful information, how are you guys playing a role? And I'm sure you want to recruit some of these other people in your network, but I mean, what's next with this?
2: Well, you're right. We do want to recruit some of the other people in our network. As, as I'm sure Susie mentioned back in January, when the report was released, we convened a meeting with stakeholders from the public, private, and nonprofit sectors to discuss the reports finding with its authors. We saw that as an initial way to get the ideas into the minds of some of the leading thinkers in this field. We also incidentally included in that meeting the primary author of another report, Essential Capacities for Urban Adaptation, Urban Climate Adaptation, which was published by Innovation Network for Communities because we think it offers important insights as well. In terms of other follow on steps, the authors themselves are very interested in being ambassadors that carry forth the ideas from the report and the the findings. So Susie and Joyce and Aleka are each in their roles as consultants and speakers at conferences taking the ideas forward. We also have provided grant support to the American Society of Adaptation Professionals to execute its role as a field builder, and I know that board is digesting the findings from the report and thinking about a field building framework and what that means for what they are doing. We also are in the process of organizing a meeting of philanthropic foundations that have interest in adaptation to, to determine how we can better coordinate our funding to more strategically advance the field. That one of the criticisms in the report was that the few foundations that are interested in this are not doing enough to take advantage of their respective funding niches and make sure that their money is being placed in as smart a way as possible. So we want to, we've committed to help coordinate that conversation. And one of the opportunities I think exists is to not just better coordinate those of us that are interested in cities and climate resilience and urban sustainability, but also reach out to some of the funders that are interested in climate adaptation from more of a rural area and natural system perspective. So we're looking forward to pulling that together. And then we're also making sure that the many grantees we fund who bring a strong racial justice lens to the work have the exposure to the ideas in the report, but also in response to part of what was in that report, which includes that equity is not well incorporated into climate adaptation yet. We're resourcing nonprofits who have strong expertise around justice and racial equity, and making sure that their expertise is incorporated into the field as it further develops.
0: I would be remiss in not giving my two cents because I went through that report, and uh, I did like a lot of the recommendations. And one of the things that it talked about that there's not enough of, and obviously I'm trying to accomplish that with the podcast, is that there's not enough awareness building with the public when it comes to adaptation. It's still... This wonky technical thing. We go to our national adaptation forums and we go to these events, and it's still too insiderish. And, you know, Susan and I talked a bit about that and ways that foundations or these other organizations that this is a big deal. This is something that humanity is going to have to grapple with. And I don't think we've even attempted to like create that more public awareness because it's all around like extreme events and those kind of things. Anyway. That's my two cents of it's an exciting topic. We just have to find ways to sort of communicate it more effectively to the public, not to practitioners, because we're we're doing that. That's going to just be an ongoing thing.
2: Well, I would say I agree with you completely, and I would say that we're not even communicating strongly enough to practitioners yet. Mm-hmm. And I think you've put your finger on the fact that the public is not yet well aware of it. To the extent that they are, it is largely because of disasters. And uh, one of the findings from both Rising to the Challenge Together and the report Essential Capacities for Urban Climate Adaptation is that there's a lack of a sense of urgency around this, a lack of urgency to act. Um, People are not necessarily even connecting those disasters that are occurring to changes in climate patterns. I was speaking just this morning with one of my colleagues about the recent flooding in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota. They had just torrential rain that took out lots of infrastructure. And we were wondering to ourselves whether those communities had climate adaptation plans, whether they've ever thought about climate adaptation, and whether they're connecting what just happened with the kind of storm events that they will be experiencing more frequently in the future. I think there's a lot that all of us need to do, including the Kresge Foundation, in thinking how can we be more strategic in our communication efforts, how can we help others with that? We know there are different nonprofits, including one that we support, Climate Access, that is working with a variety of organizations to help them be more effective in their communications around climate change, including climate adaptation. But it's a big lift. There's a lot that needs to be done still.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that Suzanne mentioned, too, is that I think you guys talked about just leaders in the field. And with climate change in general, there just aren't a lot of known leaders, almost like popular leaders. And I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Marcia Schwartz, she's a landscape architect. And she did this kind of famous garden exhibit back in the 70s where she put Donuts or something like that, and it was this world famous thing. And everyone who's a landscape architect knows who Martha Schwartz is based on that work she's done. And I got to interview her for my podcast, but we just don't have those kind of characters in the adaptation universe. And I think we would benefit from, by having some bigger names kind of rise up because they've done some amazing thing. And I think Kate Orff, she won. You know, she's she's the landscape architect. She did the by Design, but I think we would benefit. And I think Suzanne mentioned you guys have tried to create some leadership avenues, but I mean, I, I do think that's something worth pursuing over the long term. It's just, you know, you need role models.
2: Right. Who's the E.O. Wilson of education? Right. We don't, we don't have one yet. And I, I've had conversations with some folks in the field about it. And one of the strengths is that there are a variety of leaders in a variety of places and that bottom-up leadership is tremendously important, but I also think that it is evidence of the field not being very mature, that if you ask folks that are very active in this field to name the five prominent thinkers, you would get a a very diverse list of people as as opposed to Um, A handful that consistently rise to the top as the ones that we rely upon for strategic guidance and leadership.
0: Even though they're not there, it it also makes it an exciting time, as I like to explain. You know, we've been doing this 10, 15 years. It's exciting. You can help define this this field. So there's opportunities there.
2: There's huge opportunity, and I don't, by the fact that there isn't one or two people recognized as the holder of all wisdom, doesn't mean that there's not a lot of really talented people at lots of different levels of government, lots of different sized communities. There's exciting meaningful, important work going on, and we just need more of it.
0: Okay. So I want to wrap this up with two last questions Well, more just asking you is any sort of final message. If someone's listening and wants to learn more about the report or sort of any recommendation you would have on how they can use that report effectively, please share. And then I just have one last question. Well, the
2: report's available on the Kresge Foundation's website, which is kresge.org. And if you look, if you if you just search under Rising to the Challenge, you will find it. And what else would I say? Read it. And
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> talk, read it.
2: Talk about it with your friends. And Susie would want me to say, be sure to look at the appendices, which suggest what kind of action can be taken depending on the role that you play.
0: Excellent. So I ask this of all my guests. If you could recommend one person to come on the podcast that I could talk to, and if you, have, if you could play a role in helping connect me, that'd be even better, uh, who would it be? That's a great question.
2: I would recommend that you invite Taj James from Movement Strategy Center to be on the podcast. Taj is a brilliant thinker about social change and has become expert in concepts of climate resilience He serves as an advisor to one of the Kresge Foundation's initiatives, our Climate Resilience and Urban Opportunity Initiative. And he was a member of the advisory council, advisory committee to uh, the report that was produced. He brings a strong social justice orientation to the work and also is really provocative around the thought of what we get with incremental change And when we need to think about transformative change and how we think about technical fixes versus movement building around climate resilience. So he
0: would be a terrific guest for you. Well, that sounds awesome. And I'm assuming I can maybe potentially get some help connecting with him. It's always good with that kind of outreach. Absolutely. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Lois, for coming on. I appreciate all the work that Kresge Foundation does. There's More foundations should be in the adaptation realm, but you guys have been committed to it. So thank you, and uh, thanks for coming on.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Hi, Adapters. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lois DeBacher of the Kresge Foundation. Up next, I speak with Dr. Suzanne Moser. First, just a little housekeeping. I've mentioned before, you can now listen to the podcast on Alexa. In my show notes, there is a video that shows you how to do that. Also, you can now listen to the podcast on Google's new podcast app, Google Podcasts. And as always, you can listen on Spotify. So upcoming episodes, I'm doing a three-part flood-themed series with World Wildlife Fund. Also, Dr. Natasha Dijarnet from the American Public Health Association comes on, America adapts to talk about climate change and public health. And I'm also getting an Olympic snowboarding medalist, Ariel Gold, on the show to talk about an organization she's helping protect our winters, which is obviously talking about how climate change is impacting the Winter Games. Also, this is the very first episode I've done since I moved to Tucson, Arizona. If you didn't know by now, I was based in the Washington, D.C. region. It is so gorgeous out here. There are mountains and wildlife everywhere. If you're from the Tucson, Phoenix region, please reach out to me. Okay, just a reminder, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links in the We Did It Donate page in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring a specific podcast or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. You'll really enjoy it. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in the adaptation field. You can contact me via the website, americadaps.org. If you are a regular listener to AmericaAdaps, please share with your friends and colleagues and share episodes on your social media. Remember, adaptation is going to take all of us working together. Okay, adapters, let's get back to the episode and join in with Dr. Suzanne Moser. Hey, welcome back adapters. On today's episode, I am very excited to be hosting Dr. Suzanne Moser. Suzanne is a director and principal researcher of Suzanne Moser Research and Consulting in Santa Cruz, California. Susie's work focuses on adaptation to climate change, vulnerability, resilience, climate change, communication, social change, decision support, and the interaction between scientists, policymakers, and the public. Hey, Susie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Doug. How are you? Great to be here.
0: I got your last name right, right? Moser. Pretty close. (laughs) Darn it. All right. Well, okay. I tried. I'd pronounce it many different ways. So thanks for coming on the podcast. I hear all about you all the time. And so it it is a privilege to have you on. You are renowned in in adaptation, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. So let's dive in. And so I wanted to talk about two things, is that you've recently... You were the lead author on this report, Rising to the Challenge, that Kresge Foundation put together. And then I want to have a, like, a broader conversation about adaptation.
1: Okay, sounds good. Let's dive in. And let me just emphasize, I because it's, it's really, for me, the most important part about the entire report, comma, together, Rising to the Challenge, together. To me, that was a really important <sighs> part of the title. <laughs> Everybody oh. skips it, but it's actually a really important part. <laughs>
0: Well, the fact that you're highlighting it is good in itself is that we're talking about it right now that people won't forget it next time. So thank you. Thank you for that. All right. So I described a little bit about the work that you do, but could you maybe give a a bit more – before we talk about that report, maybe just – I guess, dive in a little bit more about what you do with your consulting firm.
1: Yes, I'm an independent researcher and do some consulting as well. And what I do is I help local communities, state agencies, federal agencies, sometimes foundations, like in the case of this report, and NGOs as well to think through different challenges related to how we're going to manage and prepare for the impact of climate change. And I've done that actually, whoa, my God, 20 plus years, pretty much you know, before everyone started to talk about adaptation, last 10 years, you know, it's really become a, a topic and and area of interest for a lot of people. But when I started, there probably were uh, maybe a half a dozen of people in the country <laughs> that were thinking about this. So been at this for a little
0: while. Well, that's true. And I I like to joke on this podcast that if you looked at people's LinkedIn profiles, they say they've been doing adaptation for 20, 25 years. And it's just a bunch of hooey, I think. They're just repackaging what they did previously because it really hasn't been, I think, a growing field since the last 10 years.
1: Well, I'll let other people decide whether that's hooey. And, And certainly in In my perception, and I don't think I'm completely off the deep end there, not a lot of people were with us in the early 1990s.
0: Let's put it that way. So Kresge recruited you to do this report. So what's a little bit of a history around this report?
1: Yeah, so it's actually a great opportunity. The Kresge Foundation has been funding adaptation work for quite some time, going back into the early 2000s. But at that time, it was very much focused on Sort of supporting communities with ecosystem adaptation, you know, in rural communities. And over recent years, it's really shifted toward uh, supporting cities in adapting to climate change, preparing for the impacts in urban areas. And so they wanted to understand, you know, is what we're doing actually making any difference? Um, how are we shaping the field, influencing the field, supporting the field? And of course, that came, that question for them came at a time when we were just at the cusp of switching from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. And that changed the context for adaptation in really significant ways. And, you know, it was it came sort of from going from a, an evaluation of their own portfolio to looking at okay, so tell us a little bit about what we've done, but then really, what should we be doing now? And so that was the the context in which we started to shape this with my colleagues Joyce Coffey and Aleka Seville, and here we are. Um, we did a field report, basically looking at you know what is the state of the prof- of adaptation as a professional field. You know, if you think that about that, if you think about a, the health public health field or I don't know, the field of planning, right? We ha- we have something called a profession for those areas and adaptation is relatively new and they wanted to see, you know, are we seeing the contours of a field uh, in that new arena as well? And what's the status of it and how can we best support it to grow? That's what our
0: task was. For you, you've been doing adaptation for a long time, but you know, writing a report, you know, it's a process in itself. Was there anything as you were doing your research that just sort of surprised you? Anything that kind of came up?
1: Yeah, actually, a number of things, you know, having been in the field for 25 some years, (laughs) I thought I knew quite a bit about it. I thought I had a pretty good sense of what's going on where and um, through the course of this research, I got to know areas of work and people working in it that I had really not been in touch with. And so it's been just a wonderful opportunity to deepen my own understanding of what's going on and have a better sense of the complexity and, yeah, and the challenges in the field that maybe I didn't see. I've worked mostly in urban and coastal areas. And so, um, you know, part of our work was to talk to people who do adaptation in rural areas and in areas in, in, in other sectors in, that I'm familiar with. And so learned a lot more about it. And I think that is, in some ways, the the very nature of this field is that because climate change affects everything everyone in some ways is starting to get involved, whether that's public health or whether that is, you know, emergency management or whether that is planning or whether that's engineers and infrastructure uh, revitalization and, and reconstruction or building new infrastructure or coastal management. So it's a really diverse field. And it that makes it challenging for this field to come together sort of as one. It's not just one challenge that we all revolve around because climate change say, in, you know, the backwoods of Maine looks very different than in urban areas like Buffalo, New York, or uh, in an urban area like Los Angeles. So it, it's just really um, a challenge for people to to sort of coalesce around one little thing. So that was one of the surprises. I think overall, one maybe a, a somewhat critical surprise is that I'm, I'm still surprised how, how much we don't really get the vastness of the challenge that's coming down the pike that you know it's just such a humongous challenge and we've spent the last 20 years defending whether or not climate change is happening and whether or not it's human caused and you know we've been stuck in that lane for way too long we've wasted time on that and we're now moving into this arena where climate change will come faster and faster and faster and faster faster. And we have to make decisions way faster than we've ever made. And we have to make huge decisions. And I don't think most people grasp just the profundity of what is coming at them. And we're not really prepared for that. And I somehow, you know, maybe driven by my own urgency and and concern about it, I thought maybe people would get that. And maybe, you know, we humans are just, I don't know, just trying to avoid looking at some of the really big negative or or scary things. But I think it it behooves us to take a really hard look
0: at how big the challenge is. You know, that's a recurring theme on the podcast is that it's this generational challenge. And it's actually pretty exciting. And it's very, (laughs) it's a scary thought. But some people, I think, just reduce adaptation to like, oh, we're going to build some seawalls. And it's just sort of this engineering field. And that just captures just a sliver of what it's all about. And I think that, that it doesn't help with, I guess, the identity of adaptation. It's this new field. And I think there's that sort of conflicting idea of what it ultimately is.
1: You know, this is actually a relatively new thing that people think of this as only an engineering field. For the longest time, engineers weren't even part of the conversation. For the longest time, it was about risk assessments and vulnerability assessments and, you know, looking at species and whatnot. And more recently, where people are beginning to experience some of those impacts and, and, you know, are beginning to see we need to protect ourselves against the coast, uh, the, the sea, whatever. That's when you all of a sudden see, you know, this is just a matter of engineering. And actually, it's one of the most challenging areas to change, to adapt, because engineering is driven by engineering standards and they change in very slow and difficult ways. So, for you know, it's not like you can just tell an engineer, OK, now build for, you know, something else that they actually have to go by the the professional standards in their field. And so that's a whole other conversation we could have. But so that's a you know this this idea that we have to make only relatively small adjustments, that is pervasive and that's been one that you know has been really plaguing the field. And I you know as we're saying in this report, wake up people, we're going to have to make some very big
0: changes in the report and i'll have links to the report that people can dig into i think it's about 100 pages long it's very readable and there's this notion of is adaptation its own field and you talk about this in the report and you know just if you could clear that up for me i'm not quite sure if you guys sort of make a definitive i guess statement on it but do we just look at our existing sectors and if they just start integrating adaptation it doesn't even need to be its own field or is there value in it being its own field and so you talk about this within the report i mean is it where are you at? I mean, is it does adaptation need to be its its own thing?
1: Yeah. You know, the, the report really is a, a part study, an empirical study of what do people say about that, and what do people think about that. And then it is a big part of it is our own recommendations, drawing conclusions. And the way we did that is, you know, we looked at, well, what is a field? Um, and that's actually you know, most people don't entirely know that. Many of the people we interviewed didn't know that. Um, I didn't know it before I went into it. But basically, we're we're saying, you know, based on this literature, a field is made up of why are you there? What's your purpose? Why are you uh, coming together around something? Who is there? Who is in the field? Who are the workers who do the work? What are the practices of that field? And then fourth um, component in our mind is, the sort of pillars on which it stands. Is there a policy context? Is there funding for it? And if you take that all together, um, you can begin to see why a field would be important. You know, if we're all working to, toward one end versus 20 different ends, we have a very different power, very different thing that, that we can direct our activities to. If there are only a handful of us, like way back when I started, there was no field. <laughs> you know, there was literally a half dozen of us. Now there are beginning to be thousands and, you know, that's beginning to look much more like something. But what are the, the qualifications? What are the skills? What are the practices? What are we doing? And do we have an, a shared idea around that? Do we work together around that? Those are the kinds of questions we ask around practices. And then is there funding for it? Well, most people, if you ask them, you know, what is the the, the funding context? Well, there isn't enough funding to do the work we need to do. And that fundamentally weakens or takes away the foundation on which you can actually do the work that a field would do. It's like, imagine you just took away all the funding for public health. All the doctors in the world wouldn't be able to, or nurse, nurses wouldn't be able to, you know, do much for you if they didn't have any money to help you with it, right? And, and so on and so forth. So we actually think that a field that has these four pillars really strongly developed is a really powerful saying to put all our collective shoulders against this wheel that that's that's coming so not having that and people just you know just do the counterfactual Every, everybody does whatever they do with no money and you know according to no standards i mean that's to me it's scary i always think of if you wanted to go to a chiropractor and that chiropractor didn't do a certain amount of professional development to keep up with the best practices you wouldn't go to that chiropractor. <laughs> but we have people doing adaptation without any certification, without any training, um, just saying, you know, that's not what I do. And I think that's that's a really scary thing. It's about mo- millions of dollars and countless people's lives that are at risk. So I think the power of a feel comes from having people work together toward a common goal, knowing what they're doing and having the necessary policy and financial support to do it and and practices that we know actually work. So that's kind of what we were saying is the vision, the the hope for it. And then we measured that against what people were telling us where they are. And quite frankly, we're not measuring up against that. We We don't have those pieces in place yet. So The overall message from the report was that, you know, yes, there is a field that's bubbling up, that's nascent, that's coming into place. And it was certainly supported by, you know, the second Obama administration, and the funding that came from that. And a lot of states are now stepping up to it. But it is not commensurate with the challenge that's going to be before us.
0: Okay, so you've covered that. I had that question of, you know, there's language in the report. The U.S. adaptation field has not yet found its common purpose. And, you know, let's say you're an urban planner or you're just your natural resource officer doing some adaptation. But these folks aren't necessarily thinking about, all right, what is the common purpose of adaptation? Who takes ownership of sort of establishing that? I mean, as you look at the adaptation universe now, who really would be a leader in there?
1: You know, it's a it's a really good question. Because it's so dispersed across the country, there isn't that one leader that you can say, you know, that is the person that we all look to to give us answers. I think there is sort of a growing cohort of of thought leaders and practitioners that are developing an idea and of course we come together in the national adaptation forum or in some of the regional adaptation forums to coalesce that for us or People meeting around urban issues to help define what, you know, what does adaptation or resilience or whatever mean in that context? All of this is context is we're, uh, contested. We're, we're struggling with it. We're grappling with it. It's not, you know, I can't point to you to the, to the one person. In fact, we, we did that in the report. You know, we asked everyone, who do you consider to be the leader? And it turned out that, you know, we got a very, very long list of people as opposed to the three or four. Right. We interviewed close to 80 people and everyone basically said somebody else. I think there were maybe two organizations and maybe one or two people who were mentioned more than two or three times. So that tells you something about how dispersed we still are. I think this is something that, you know, we recommended to the Kresge Foundation. They could pull together the people who they think are leaders, maybe ask some of those folks who they consider to be the leaders, bring them together and and start working now you know, start helping people to emerge as the leading figures. But I'm not sure it's there. I mean, you introduced me as to be, you know, one of those people. I don't know if I am that person. I'm probably that for some people in some arenas. But I don't know, maybe we don't need, you know, the one Martin Luther King or the one whatever, put in your leading figure for something. But a cohort of people, I think, is emerging uh, in those areas. I have my favorite people that I that I point to that I go to if I have questions. So I think that's beginning to to coalesce a little bit.
0: You know, Randy Olson and I had this conversation on one of my podcasts. It's the climate change movement in general, just lack of leaders. And you know what people would bring up Al Gore or something, but like, you know, it, it hampers the movement that, you know, people can't rally even if it's just a symbolic leader, there's value in that. So I like that idea that maybe Kresge does a leadership summit, but who gets to decide the invite list there? You know, that in itself could create a bit of friction.
1: Yeah, uh, we had when we released the report, we had a what the Kresge Foundation called an influencer meeting with maybe, you know, 60 people or something in the room. And, you know, really amazing people in the urban arena, um, amazing people in the, you know, climate justice arena uh, in various aspects, you know, coastal water, you name it in the financing arena. So I think it's just because you need so many different pieces. And so maybe one of the challenges in adaptation is that we start to really transform our thinking about what is leadership. I mean, it might not be the one person. It might be a collective or a sort of a networked form of leadership. So much of the best work that I see coming up is really coming from the bottom up people you've never heard of but you know who work in their communities and and who do really uh, cross sector integrated community government integrated work I, I think we might have to rethink a lot of things including the idea of leadership
0: I think the value of that leadership too is not just that they're doing great adaptation on the ground but the public needs to be brought along and explain how important adaptation is and so having you know some f- figureheads or whatever who can communicate in the right channels that just needs to happen. You know, talking to the public, that's a missing piece, I think, in a lot of this.
1: Well, I suppose I want to throw that ball back to you then. Maybe America Adapts becomes uh, the sort of display of the the figureheads of adaptation. I don't know. I'll challenge you to do that.
0: Hey, I like that, and I feel like I'm doing that to a certain extent. I just, uh, yeah, just need to keep uh, keep at it. But no, I I like to think that the people I'm recruiting to this podcast—I've had 64 episodes. A lot of them are leaders in the field. So no, your point well taken, and just there aren't actually a lot of platforms. You know, you might write a report or you might do this, but just. Adaptation professionals just don't actually have that many venues to kind of come up and talk to the public. So uh, I'm with you there.
1: Yeah, I, I think right now it's it's a lot of insider baseball. You know, when you oh, go totally. to um, when you go to a planner's meeting, you begin to hear more about adaptation. It's becoming part of what they do. Um, when you go to an engineering conference, you hear people talk about you know we need to adapt our our standards and practices and whatnot so it 's there right but it 's I think you know one of the things we say in the report is that we need the media to pick up America adapt stories so beyond the podcast that you 're producing, which are very helpful to have it out in the mainstream media and the, you know really tell the story of what 's working, what people are doing, not just the doom and gloom of what 's all coming down with climate change. But what are people actually doing that is creative, that is inclusive, that is innovative, that is actually reducing the risks that they're facing? Um, And, you know, I think one of the important pieces there is that we do that in an increasingly integrated fashion so that we make the connections to what people care about, to the things that they experience in daily life, whether that's the roads they travel, if they're not flooded, um, but they're, they're safe, that the bridges are safe. You know, the bridges have been unsafe for a long time, even before climate change or before we started to talk about climate change. They have to be upgraded. So let's do that now in a way that actually addresses both the old infrastructure problem and the climate change problem on top of that. And then you're beginning to get people's attention for that and they see that it's actually constructively moving
0: forward. I think part of it's just sometimes the adaptation universe doesn't want to kind of separate from the mitigation side of things, which it's, it's a different kind of story. We do need something you know, what's it, like National Geographic, you know, their whole emphasis is on explorers and that concept, and so the equivalent of Nat Geographic for you know adaptation, adapters, and just telling those stories. Mm-hmm. But that is a level of you know exposure and, and media interest that you know we haven't even begun to kind of <laughs> approach. So.
1: Well there's a there's a definite risk you know that that this whole adaptation issue becomes such a technical and technocratic approach and an issue that stays disconnected from the public but the some of the best stories out there are the ones that connect to communities where they live who want to improve their neighborhoods who want to make them better And who want to be at the table of making those decisions. And, you know, interestingly enough, the decisions change when that happens. We've seen that in a whole number of places where community groups get, uh, you know, involved in those decisions. So I think we can, you know, we could talk about adaptation in ways that will never touch anybody's lives, or we can actually tell those stories in ways that connect to the day-to-day experience that people have and give them ways to contribute and give them ways to have a voice in those decisions. And, you know, that's what a series like this and, and certainly
0: news stories
1: could really help with.
0: I hear feedback from listeners and some of it is that they actually take, you know, actions on mitigating their carbon footprint because they've heard these adaptation stories. And you, you know, Laura Hansen, she's one of those, I think, legends in the adaptation universe. And she's been on and, you know, talking about true mitigation through adaptation. And I think that's a very intriguing thought is that is, is you sort of explain to folks that as we need to adapt to climate change it puts them in a different mindset of like okay now we're willing to make those kind of sacrifices on the mitigation side and i I hope that you know we can play a role in that way
1: i've been long enough around in this to have you know witnessed how maybe in the 1990s we were like oh don't talk about adaptation because it's going to take away from mitigation and now it's just the opposite that people are beginning to see that you know You open a door to people's hearts and minds through those lived experiences of more extremes or changes in their neighborhoods that they observe. And then they are beginning to be open to, well, maybe, you know, even if I don't entirely sure about these human caused climate changes, maybe I want to better be safe than sorry and help at least, you know. Be on the right side of history, if you will. And so that opens the conversation. We basically use this approach of, you know, we got to address the root causes and we got to address the consequences that we haven't avoided and do both through the lens of social inclusion and equity as that's what we term closing the resilience gap. You will not close the resilience gap for everyone if you only adapt and you forget that mitigation, or if you only mitigate and forget the rest. And if you don't do it, you know, with an a, a, an emphasis on, you know, the the most vulnerable and the people who have the least resources to help themselves in these situations, then you're just not, you know, then it becomes a, a sort of class issue, whether or not, or a racial issue, whether or not you can be safe in the future. So. The re- closing the resilience gap needs to do both mitigation, adaptation, and doing that through that social equity lens. And it's really hard work.
0: Yeah. And you get exposed to that, I'm sure. But I just actually got back from Kenya a few days ago, d- working with people that do adaptation in Vietnam and Indonesia. And it's just a much different beast over there. And you talk about equity and the sort of issues. It's life or death. Where in the U.S., I mean, it's life and death when we talk about, you know, some storm events and such, but it's not like it is in other countries. And so, uh, you know, almost two separate tracks there.
1: I might uh, beg to differ, differ with you. You know, people who live in toxic environments, who live in air polluted environments, who live in areas where they can't have clean water. It's a life and death issue already. Um, in this country, we just sit in very privileged places to have this conversation. But for a lot of people, things are very tough. You know, if you live in an urban environment that's ridded with violence and you can't leave the house and you can't pay your air conditioning bill, it is a life or death issue. If it's hot, it's really, you can't, I mean, you will die in your apartment, you know, roasting if you can't be in a place. We, we, you know, don't have urban green, green spaces or, uh, canopy cover in the poorest neighborhoods. We we know that already. It's a life and death issue there.
0: All right. I stand corrected. And I, you know, I'm thinking of just I talked to these two women from Malawi and they were saying last year because of drought associated, what they think is climate change, like six million more people were at risk of starvation. And you know, you're absolutely right. But, but when I hear those kind of things, you know, that sort of desperate, you know, I don't hear as often as, as I probably need to. And so, yeah, it's I think there's all. All sorts of ways that we're not thinking about how it's affecting us today
1: yeah I, I hear you about the numbers you know you have just been there that's the that's the benefit you just witnessed it you saw it I think that is the the beauty and the opportunity of of reporting on these stories right to to both show how these things are true in our country um whether that's in you know South Louisiana or whether that's in Detroit or you name it, the Central Valley or whatever the case may be, telling those stories and then showing how people are actually taking their lives in their own hands and and are helping to contribute to changing those conditions, the obstacles they face, the ways in which they're excluded from decision making. I mean, I think, you know, this is one of these really interesting, precarious moments about the field, right? So we, we know this, we recognize these issues, but we haven't fully address them. And at the same time, we're beginning to make this field much more technocratic. We're beginning to, you know, talk about financial instruments and it's all Wall Street now and it's all, you know, the big banks and the big, you know, financial instruments that are way too complicated for most communities to ever get their hands on. And that's an interesting moment, right? Are we, you know, we need that money. We need the technical expertise, but are we forgetting the social element in this progression of our field? How do we make sure that we don't forget the hard lessons we have learned about social vulnerability and and inclusion and what we need to do to bring people to the table and change the governance side? So these are really interesting challenges for us here in the U.S. to grapple with. And I think that's true in Kenya and Malawi and Vietnam and you name it.
0: In the report, and uh, I look at all these questions I have for you. I'm like, I could talk to you for two hours here, but we chat about this on the uh, our previous phone conversation. And the the idea of transformative change, and that's talked about in the report. And I wanted to give you a, a chance to talk about because it it's not something I guess I've thought about enough. And the report did a good job. In our conversation, sort of said, you know what, you, you know, Susie was right about that. Because you just kind of like. Briefly, sort of explain what you mean about that, and I think you talked about one sector in particular that that is actually experiencing it.
1: Yeah, so we started to talk about it in this conversation already. You know, this notion that adaptation is essentially a little bit of tinkering, a little bit of a you know, elevate your seawall by whatever a foot here, and you know, change the pipe size a little bit here. That those kinds of relatively small adjustments but keeping pretty much everything the way it is that's kind of the old version of adaptation and what we mostly do right now but for some people um, and uh, if in some instances the changes that are that they're already facing or that are coming will be so profound that their lives in 20 years will look nothing like the lives that they leave right now you know take a community that has to retreat, As a whole community, not just a couple of houses here and there, but entire community being relocated inland. Take a a, a community that, in a positive sense, that has never been part of governance decision, becomes part of actually making choices around how they live. You know, changing the way we produce our food, where we get it from. Right now, you and I probably couldn't name where the things come from that are in our kitchen. But, you know, what if that was not the truth anymore? I mean, what if our entire ways of valuing things, our beliefs, our way we do things and the institutional support and the policies around it were completely different? That is what I mean by transformation. And if I think about what it means to have three feet of sea level rise, if we are lucky, but more like five, six and even possibly more uh, feet of sea level rise along the American coast, That to me is so staggering as a as an idea, because who will pay for that? You know, it will probably change how we I mean, not just change and wipe out entire communities. It will change how we support local government to make these choices, how we finance anything. It might change the insurance industry so fundamentally (laughs) that we can't even barely imagine what that might look like. So it's those kinds of changes that we're not really thinking about. We've been very reactive in the adaptation field, basically just dealing with the problems as they literally rose up on our doorstep. Um, But what if we thought, let's just take the coastal environment and, and we think about sea level rise rising faster and faster, because that is the nature of an exponential curve. And we have to deal with the problems in much faster ways. We have to figure out solutions. So put yourself in 2038, in 2048, and it's at least a foot higher, if not more, by that time. We have to have solutions we haven't even started to think about right now. And that kind of challenge of thinking about the transformative governance solutions, financial solutions, uh, relocation, restoration those types of systemic changes—that's what I think we start need to start thinking about now because it takes a while for them to actually be implemented.
0: I would guess that we're going to have transformative change by default because, like you said, we're going to be reactive here. And in theory, we could try to go through that transformation right now, but it's just not in our in our instincts.
1: Well, it's it's tough, you know. Someone's got to pay for it. Someone's got to come up with well, what it what does that alternative look like? And yeah, I think you're right that there is going to be many, many instances when we basically are faced with a really dire situation and we will have to change. You know, our track record with having to change is that we do it eventually. We don't necessarily do it in a very comprehensive manner. And, you know, I I think we have an obligation as forward-looking adaptation professionals to start thinking in systemic ways, to start thinking in integrative ways and to really help people begin to think outside the box. And I, you know, in our study for the Kresge um, report, I just found most of that willingness to think about that among the people who are already in really tough spots right now. And that is the, the, you know, the, the low income communities, the people of color who have been neglected for a very long time and for, who have already reached a point of, I don't want to keep doing this anymore because this is not dignified. This is not a life. This is not safe. This is not good for us. They're willing to think outside the box. And I think we have to learn from them and we can learn from them and with them to to really, you know, come up with alternative ways of thinking about our
0: future. So we have time just for a few more questions, but regarding the report, so what now, what, what's Kretzky planning to, to do with the report? I know it's been published now probably three or four months, but it, is there something happening now or is there a long-term goal with it? We've been giving a bunch of talks
1: about it. We've tried to share just the word about it in various ways. Spread the, you know, we've had the the influencer meeting. I think it's, you know, everyone there was sort of going away with, okay, I'm going to take this, this, and this forward um, in their own lives wherever they are. You know, we have the adaptation forum in the national adaptation forum coming up in 2019. I hope there will be some opportunity to. To share more about it and to have discussions, it is influencing the way Kresge itself is thinking about it. I know Kresge has uh, committed to bringing together funders to to think through what you know how they can better support the adaptation field as a you know as a, as sort of one of those pillars, right? The financial pillar behind the field, especially important now that the federal government is. Really trying to under, well, basically undermining the the funding support that came previously. So I think there's there's all that going on. There, you know, I mean, there's ongoing conversations um, between the American Society of Adaptation Professionals with other professional societies of how to improve the practice of people in different professions to be, you know, integrating climate change to account for the changes and. Yeah, to just become more adaptive themselves. So I think there's sort of a, a collective um, effort on various parts to keep working on it. And I look forward to listening to the conversation you have with Lois to, to see what they're doing to, to help build it forward.
0: Two more questions, and um, I want to make sure I have time for both. But I actually hear quite often from – I have younger listeners, and I mean like out of university or just young career – And some people, they're very interested in getting into the adaptation field. And, you know, I try to share resources and my own advice, but sometimes I'm at a loss. You know, they might be in one typical area, but people are just very excited about it. You must have these conversations. Is there any sort of advice? And quite frankly, I don't think the universities have jumped into the the adaptation field, you know, quick enough. There are some universities, I think, offering some programs. But do, do you have any advice for any of my listeners out there if they want to get into adaptation?
1: It's a really great question, and it's actually something that um, we, you, you just confirmed. One of the recommendations we we made in the report, which is that you know we need to build the pipeline from people starting all the way in high school to even learn about what professions are out there, so that they can choose their fields as they go into universities and major and you know whatnot. I think the university is an interesting beast. You know, in academia per se, we've been talking about adaptation for. Decades, right? It, it's been a, a matter of, of study, and you could study geography, you could study, e- you know, ecology, and and you can learn about that there, anthropology, whatever. But it it hasn't, as a as a institution in society, it hasn't made a concerted effort similar to say, you know, what. What universities committed to to meeting the you know Paris agreement or, or previously to reduce their own emissions, they hasn't made this sort of institutional commitment to building the workforce or um, you know adapting their own institutions. That is only beginning to happen. And I think you know that the best thing I would say for young people right now is to look at the you know where in the world they want to make a difference, and if the adaptation is sinking isn't there already. To demand that teachers, professors, and universities include them as classes cross connect across different master programs and whatnot. I mean, there's sustainability programs out there. There are, you know, climate action programs out there in various places. If you want to go into planning their, you know, professional degrees in, in that regard. They don't necessarily all yet include adapt- adaptation and climate change as a matter of course. And that is what is increasingly needed and students need to demand it. And then ask th- your professor to bring in someone from you know, the local environment, whatever, an NGO, a professional society, a city and say, tell us what you do and tell me how you got here. I mean, have people tell their stories of how they they got into the field.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of interesting. You, you probably deal with them. There's all sorts of institutes out there at universities that are popping up, institute of sea level rise, or that they're really trying to tackle the issue of climate change. But I think they've bypassed the notion of like, well, we actually are going to create a degree program around it. And I've only heard actually of a few, I think NC State or one of the schools in North Carolina actually has like like a master's in adaptation, but I haven't heard much. And I think that would show that the the field's maturing.
1: Yeah, I think that that would be. I think it's like I said, it's just beginning. I mean, you know, you have to look in some places really hard to find it, but it's there. Like I'm thinking University of Michigan, people are dealing with 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 adaptation in a number of, you know, in schools of environments or whatnot, uh, environmental study programs. So it's there in those places. It's just not called out as that. But, you know, there's lots of places. University of Arizona is an amazing place to go to and has really skilled people. And you need to look where, you know, where exactly does it happen? Well, it oftentimes and I just say it partly because this is the field that I grew up in. Adaptation has been one of the longest standing topics in the field of geography. And you wouldn't think that you wouldn't know that if you just judged from high school social studies. But geography is an amazing Way in.
0: I'm actually moving to Tucson, and I've already set up a podcast with one of the professors there. So, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> um, Excellent. All right. Last question is that I ask this of every guest is if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, and if you could help make that connection, who would it be?
1: So I, I have to say it just because you know you're just mentioned Tucson now. So Kathy Jacobs, that would be my person there that you want to talk to.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I've encountered Kathy and numbers. Occasion, so yeah. Well, maybe I'll try to do it in person. I'll just track her down and you know see if she's interested. So no, she she's been she's been doing this for a while. So yeah, very excellent recommendation.
1: Well, she was the she was the director of the third national climate assessment, and you know was the director of the Department of Water in, in Arizona. So she has the experience both from living on the ground as a decision maker. And in trying to you know affect things, affect change at the federal agency level, and it was an amazing experience
0: you know she wasn't there, but I was asked to give a presentation at like the engagement group for the NCCA. this was like seven eight years ago, and I had a slide of uh, her and John Stewart on the Daily Show, and my point was like, need to get creative. Uh, what start talking about the National Climate Assessment, make it a bit sexier, and so yeah, I that's Kathy Jacobs. I remember that finally from that slide. So
1: well, she is a pretty funny person, so it might actually work work out.
0: All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You know, I got through a third of these topics. I, I hope at some point in the future I can have you on again and we, maybe we can dig into uh, some other topics related to this and maybe even explore what are some opportunities to kind of get the message out on adaptation. But thanks for coming on.
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to come again. Thanks.
0: Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks again to Lois DeBacker and to Suzanne Moser for coming on the podcast. It's an exciting time to be doing adaptation. It's a new emerging field, and there are many, many opportunities for those wanting to influence where we're headed. I look forward to the years ahead as a new generation of leaders emerge and help us adapt to climate change. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join, and I will approve you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on the Facebook wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. And I say this every time. I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. Share a potential guest with me. Let me know if you liked a particular episode and why. Seriously, it's the highlight of a week, and it sometimes leads to really cool things. I am at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. All right, check out the website at americadaps. All this information is in my show notes, especially that link to the donate page. Come on, you longtime listeners. I know you've wanted to donate for a while. You just haven't gotten around to it. Now's the time. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.